A few years ago, uh, tennis pro Andre Agassi, or Andre Agassi, was the celebrity endorser for Canon cameras, and his sales slogan was, image is everything. Image is everything. In our culture, advertisers try to sell us a new identity, not the benefits of a particular product. Use our product and you'll become the kind of man, you'll become the kind of man that women can't resist. Old Spice, believe in your smell. Image is everything. What defines your identity? Who are you? For many of us, it's not the products that we buy, but our work that competes for first place in our lives. The value of our lives is determined by our work product because most, if not all of us, are scrutinized by those we work for and compete against day in and day out. A student is defined by their GPA or what schools that they have been accepted by. A salesman by their quota. A scholar by their publications, an entrepreneur by the return on their investments, a mom or dad by their child's behavior, a pastor by his most recent sermon. Is my job the primary source of my identity? The Bible's answer is no, it's not. And these verses from Genesis challenge us to see our lives differently. We're given a job description. Genesis 1.26 tells us that we were, made, we were created to rule over or have dominion over creation. And in verse 28, God blessed the first human couple because God is gracious and then gives them a job, be fruitful and multiply. Now that's a fun job. Teenagers usually love hearing that God's first command to people was make other people. However, the wait until you're married part is a little bit of a less popular teaching. Remember the refrain to the creation narrative. It is good. Genesis 1 ends this way. It's all good, but it's undeveloped. Our first parents are asked to work the garden, to cultivate it, not just procreation, but civilization. Create culture, not just in your home, but on your team and your company. In creation, work was intended by God to be an entirely good thing. Now you might say, not my job. I hate work. Well, we'll get to that. Before I went to seminary, I worked in outside sales and then in human resources. So I have some sense of what your daily grind is like. That's why verse 27 is the key here. Image is everything. Throughout history, people have spoken about being created in the image of God in metaphysical terms, reason, conscience, the divine spark of intellect. But it's more than that. As God's image bearers, we have a delegated authority to represent his rule and reign. Image of God is like a verb. We're created to image our creator which is why a season of unemployment or underemployment can be so difficult. What does the text say about being made in God's image? Verse 28 mentions subduing the earth, and that's strong language. Unfortunately, people have used this as a tacit license to exploit the earth, but that's not what's being said here. God is saying care for, cultivate. Strong language is used because it will take great effort The word subdue implies calling. It implies mission. In the creation narrative, the earth was without form and void. God is portrayed as an inventor, an investor. You're made in his image, so fill the void. Construct something out of nothing. That's the mandate. Not only that, but being created in God's image is revolutionary language. Old Testament scholar Gerard von Rod said that 
this language was reserved for the king. In the areas of the empire where the ruler did not physically appear, he would erect an image of himself as a representative of God's reign through him. In Genesis 1.27, the seeds of democracy are being sown. Upon each person is bestowed the same image as the king himself, and it would take 3,000 years to realize the implications of this idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And not just men, by the way, but women as well, created equally, carrying the image of the king. Revolutionary language. Remember, these words were written to slaves who were liberated from Egypt. Your royalty now. Hard to believe for the Israelites then and for us today. If the king was understood to be the image of God on earth, he was also understood to be God's mediator, the priest. Every one of you represents God in your place of work. Exodus 19 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And the apostle Peter would later write, You shall be a royal priesthood. Where does this come from? Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. The implications are enormous. God's image is in you, and it is what is most essentially you. You are created to be royalty. That image has been marred. That's Genesis 3, but it can be restored. Perhaps some of you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books. These were popular when I was younger, and they're still available to children today. Stories like The Abominable Snowman and The Lost Jewels of Nabuti. At the end of the chapter, the reader has a choice as to which path they want to follow in the story. If you want to chase The Abominable Snowman into the woods, go to page 56. If you want to search for The Lost Jewels of Nabuti in the King's Tomb, go to page 73. Be careful what choices you make, though, because they will impact the plot line significantly. Image is everything. We were created in God's image, but we easily forget that and seek other things to define our identity. So it's time for us to choose your own adventure. Option number one is you were created in God's image, beloved in creation to represent the reign of his kingdom, or will you choose option number two? Your work is the primary source of your identity. Is your job going to be the center of your story? If you're a student, school is your job. Which story will you choose to make sense of the choices that you have to make in this life? When reading a choose-your-own-adventure story, if you choose wrongly, you hardly risk anything at all. Just go back to the place in the book where you made the wrong turn and flip to another page instead. But what if you get the story of life wrong? What if there is a true story given by God to the world? That's a story you'd want to get right because there's a lot at stake. As I said before, I worked for a little while in corporate America, so I have a little bit of an inkling how difficult it is to look at your career through the lens of faith. On Sunday morning, the preacher gets up and says that your fundamental identity is that you are a beloved child of God through Jesus Christ. And you are. And then Monday comes... And every other voice in your life is saying, who you are is determined by what you do, by what you make of yourself in the real world. Here's my claim today. Work is not intended to be the object of worship, but an aspect of a lifestyle of worship for those who want to be disciples and live out loud. 
How does God see our work? The texts read, the texts that were read for us today speak to that question. And so we're going to look at three things. The value of work, the void of work, and the victory in work. First, the value of work. If you look at Genesis 2.2, it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Notice the text says God finished his work. This is easy to miss, and it's unique to Christianity. Other religions don't teach that God is a worker. Other creation accounts are different. The Babylonian account of creation is called the Enuma Elish, and it's very clear why the gods created humans in that epic. Because they don't want to work. We're gods. We don't work. Work is beneath them. Also, in Greco-Roman mythology, work is seen as a curse and nothing else. And this is the enduring perspective of work, even in our culture. Many of us view work as a punishment. Work is something that we have to get through, retire from, then our real life can start. TGIF, work is a necessary evil. We do what we have to do so that we can do what we want to do. But in the Bible, God is depicted as a worker, a maker, and he likes his work. Hey, I like it. It's very good. Like any artist, he takes pride in his work. And because we're created in this image, that means, among other things, we're created to work. God blessed the first human couple by giving them work to do. Go, make, do, enjoy. And Genesis 1.31 says it was all very good, but the work wasn't finished. God created the world to need our work. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, before the fall, God planted a garden and gave people work to do, and he created us in his image to do it. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And later in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Remember, this is Eden, paradise. Imagine work in paradise. That doesn't come through on the Club Med you know, commercials. The first human couple were called to be gardeners. Gardeners get their hands dirty. They get into the soil. You water it. You, you cultivate the earth. That means Wailing Garden Club images God well. Far from being a curse, work was part of paradise originally. It's part of the created intention for the world. And some commentators say in Isaiah 65, it's, it's God's intention for us in the new heaven and the new earth. That means your job is not a penalty. Work is part of our inherent value. It is image of God. 500 years ago, John Calvin wrote, in following your proper calling, no work will be so mean and sordid as not to have splendor and value in the eye of God. He meant there is no distinction between secular and sacred work. It's all sacred. That means certain vocations are not more noble or more spiritual or more God-honoring than others. That means a builder building, a parent changing diapers, and a pastor praying. Each of us is doing God's work. Gordon Smith wrote, God is calling people into education, the arts, public office, business, engineering, medicine, and every area and sector of human life. God calls and enables his children to be kingdom agents in every sphere of life and society. God is at work caring for the world through your work. That's the value of our work. 
But the story doesn't end in Genesis 2. There is a void in our work. Because our first parents did not trust God, they fell from grace. And as a consequence, we can read in Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19, to the woman the Lord said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. We just said that work itself is not a curse, but as a consequence of sin, labor in all of its forms becomes cursed. What was designed by God to be easy and pleasurable can become difficult. Pain, sweat, and toil. Frustrating, thorns, and sometimes apparently pointless. Thistles. We know that today, whether or not you like your job, work is a mixed bag. It looks like strained relationships at work. If you don't get along with some of the people that you work with, be encouraged. The original workplace had only two employees. And even they were whining to each other about the boss. We feel this deep inner turmoil. Have you ever experienced this? Someone else is better than you are at what you do best. It stirs something within us. We want to make a difference in the world, but it can get twisted into envy and discontentment and the elusive search for the perfect job. Turmoil, thorns, and thistles. Still, we're blessed. Very few people in the world today get to ask the question, what do you want to do for a living? Most people in the world today have the same job, survive. They don't get to ask their kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yet we do. What a privilege. But a lot of people end up picking a career that their parents or society or somebody else has deemed worthy for them. And as a result, many highly educated people hate their jobs today. You feel stuck in a career you chose before you even knew you had a choice. And now you feel stuck. The void also looks like a lack of balance. Many wonder if or how a work-life balance is even possible. You cannot be at home at night to tuck your son in and be working late in the office at the same time. You make your choice, and it can be agonizing. The poet W.B. Yeats put it this way, you have to choose perfection of the life or perfection of the work. That's why the Lord told Eve, I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. More than physiological pain is suggested here. One more. This has never been more true than today. Luke Ferry wrote a brief history of thought and he wrote, with our society's emphasis on the self, self-realization, self-actualization. Work has become the defining activity of man. Individualism has tended to elevate one's work to the highest rung as a form of salvation. Work has become a form of salvation. Every day we get up and we try to justify our existence with the result that success at work equals success. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Entertainer Lady Gaga said, My whole life is a performance, and I have to up the ante every day. 
Now, you might not think you have much in common with Lady Gaga. You may not even know who she is. But so many of us are caught up in the same performance trap, just on a smaller stage. You know you're caught in this trap if you have swallowed the lie that success at work equals success if you're just exhausted. You're chronically exhausted. Because we have completely swallowed work as our fundamental identity. It's a lie. Your work is not the fundamental source of your identity. Work is a good thing, but when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, you've lost God's perspective on your work. That's why we need to see the victory in our work. And by victory, I mean the gospel. The gospel is the true story that God has told the world about Jesus, his son. How does the gospel reshape our work? The gospel gives us a more realistic and satisfying view of our work. It's actually really practical. Here are three gospel resources that you can take with you to work tomorrow morning. The gospel, number one, gives you a new perspective for your work and a new power to do your work. It doesn't say, stop doing what you're doing. Granted, some jobs may be unredeemable, It's hard to be a drug dealer for the glory of the Lord, right? But almost all jobs can be done with similar results, but for a new motive, for a different audience. The ESV translates Ephesians 6, 6 this way, work not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Being a Christian at work means more than talking about Jesus at work. If he really is the most important thing in your life, sooner or later, Jesus should come up in a conversation. I used to give away Bibles at Fidelity Investments when I worked there. I'm sure some people thought that I was weird, but it did inspire some good conversation about faith with my coworkers. Being a Christian at work means more than being ethical, being honest, not cheating on tests. It's more than having integrity showing up on time, putting in a full day's work, doing what you'll say you'll do, being considerate. These are expectations that every employer has of every employee, regardless of their faith. Being a Christian at work means seeing your work as worship. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. See, if you're my doctor, I care that you're kind, but I care more that you're good at practicing medicine. If you're my lawyer, I care that you're honest, but I care more that you give sound legal counsel. Some have called this a ministry of competence. Even if you don't like your job, even if you're looking for work, God has given you particular talents and gifts and has given you a particular place right now as a way to be of service to other people. That means your work is not just the place of your ministry. Your work is your ministry. Second, the gospel gives you a new definition of success. The gospel story puts work in its place. Choose your own adventure. Which story will you choose to answer the questions you have to face at work? You will face questions like this. What is success? When facing an ethical dilemma, how will you choose what's right and what's wrong? Should I accept that job offer? How will you handle unemployment? You get to choose. People say, God first, family second, job third. But being a Christian does not mean that. It means that 
all of the other loves in your life are ordered by your first love, which means that while there are a variety of jobs and vocations you could choose, for a Christian there is finally only one call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The call of discipleship in all of life, the call of Jesus Christ, is to belong to Christ completely. He's saying that whatever your job is, whatever business you're in, the gospel changes your bottom line. For example, the gospel and business. Of course, business in business, profit is the motivating factor, and it can be a noble one to serve the common good, to create jobs, to create wealth. But management consultants like Jim Collins have argued that your company will never thrive if, your, if profit is your only motivating factor. Collins says great companies will always have multiple bottom lines. Business matters to God and not just how you do it, which means you do not need to leave the business world to be a part of the mission of God. You don't have to leave it and go into missions or ministry. You are on the front lines. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. David Gill is part of the Theology of Work Project, and if you're trying to make sense out of God's ministry in and through your work, check out Theology of Work, one word, theologyofwork.org. There you'll find resources for your questions and biblical reflections on callings and ethics and excellence in the workplace. What about the gospel and helping professions? Teachers, lawyers, doctors, nurses, ministry workers, homemakers, It's easy to lose yourself in the helping professions. It's easy to say, look how important my work is and overwork because you're giving so much of yourself to benefit other people. Because you're helping vitally, it's good to remember, nurse, therapist, doctor, you're not the great physician. It's good to remember, teacher, professor, you're not the true teacher. It's good to remember, lawyer, policeman, politician, you're not the most righteous agent of justice. Although you're helping, you are not the one who is ultimately needed. And most importantly, we are imminently replaceable. Winston Churchill once said, the graveyard is full of irreplaceable men. When you really believe that, it enables you to laugh at work, even as you do the most serious job there is. The gospel story gives you a new story for your work and it redefines success for you. Here's the question. What is success for you? If it is identity option number one, that you're created in the image of God, that image has been marred but not defaced, and the whole purpose of your life is for that image to be restored, the image of God in you, you want to become the man or woman you were created to be, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, more loving, more human. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed into his likeness, becoming like Jesus in and through our work, if that's your definition of success, not only will it give you wisdom as you make the tough choices you must navigate, but every setback, suffering, and closed door in your career will become a stepping stone. A season of unemployment, as hard as it is, will not undo you because it cannot undo your highest ambition. But this also means that every accomplishment becomes a potential obstacle to your highest goal. That's why Paul said, whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I count as a loss. Because your highest goal is, 
the image of God being restored in you. The gospel has redefined success for you. Thirdly, the gospel enables us to rest even while we work. The good news is Jesus Christ has already done for you the most important work. He lived for you, he has died for your sin, and he has been raised to life for you. When that becomes the story underwriting all of your work, you don't have to prove who you are or to somebody else who you are by your work. You don't have to be distinguished. You don't have to live for the praise of people. Your life no longer has to be a performance. When the gospel is your bottom line, you can rest even as you keep working. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. And I will give you a new yoke, my own. Jesus is saying there, yokes are inevitable. Whose yoke are you going to be under? You see, we place yokes on ourselves. Who puts yokes on you? I think it's so sad to hear a young person confess, I hate my parents because they put so much pressure on me to succeed at school. Or to hear somebody say to their exhausted spouse, why can't you make more money? These expectations that we place on one another's lives are so heavy. Do you see your life under Jesus' yoke? His yoke is easy, but to see your life under his yoke, now that can be hard. When you become a Christian, you not only admire Jesus, you're learning to rest in the finished work of Christ, which means for the first time in your life, you're able to simply go to work or endure not working. That's the victory of the gospel in our work. As we gather around this table in a few moments, we're saying that we trust entirely of the work and the work of Jesus on the cross for the justification of our existence, and for the achievement of salvation in our lives. Regardless of what your supervisor says at your next performance review, regardless of the grade you receive on your next paper, the victory has already been won. Regardless of our performance at work, when we take this bread and cup, we're publicly testifying that we believe we are already completely accepted by God. And we rest in his grace. In the beginning, God said, it is finished so that he could rest from his work. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished so that we could find rest even as we work. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for the value of our work and for the victory of your work for us. Day in and day out, we experience a void, we experience sin, and we strive to demonstrate our worth through our work. Yet all along, you have already bestowed upon us your stamp of approval. By your grace, we were made in your image, and by your grace, you offer us forgiveness and salvation from our sin, not because of anything that we have done or could ever do, but because of the completed work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We lift up our hearts to you now, risen Jesus, trusting that the same Spirit that has worked faith into our heart will continue to restore your image in our lives. Amen.